0: 411 Live. Where well, you
1: can learn about issues that affect us every day. State the world. 411 Live. Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. Boy, your girl.
2: Live. Hello, I'm Beverly Taylor, and this is the 411 Live. Real people, real talk. Last week, we kicked off our look back at the top 15 episodes of the 411 Live in 2021. We highlighted 15 through 8. Let's continue with the top 7. In number 7, I chatted with author Jason Armand Boyd, who wrote The Reasons Why Relationships Suck But Dating Is Worse. Well, according to Boyd, women have been going about relationships all wrong. He says women have power and control. They must take the leadership role and be responsible for the relationship. And he says men like it that way, sort of. We had a friendly debate on some of his rules of engagement.
0: I'd say that women have been misinformed about their position in the relationship. Okay. I think most women have been told that they are to be helpmates to men, mm-hmm. which in my opinion is incorrect. And that puts the woman in a subservient role. And in that, they have no idea that they're truly the leaders of the relationship. The relationship revolves around where they're going in their life what their life consists of, what they hold in high regard. That is what men try to cater to, to get women to acknowledge or just even notice that we're around. So we are pursuing women. That puts her in a position of, I don't want to say superiority, but that is, she is the prize in the relationship. So at that point, that puts you in charge.
2: Okay. So say you get to the point where you say, this, this is going good. We're going to get married. So once marriage happens same dynamic, or does it shift again?
0: All marriage really is is to let all of our friends and know that we're doing this, and really, it's to help help hold us accountable. Like they say, it takes a village to raise a child; it takes a village to raise a couple. So that's where your family and your friends come in. So now, he can't be out here just at the club or doing type. You got people watching you now. We came to the wedding. We saw you stand in front of God and say all this stuff. What you doing over here? Doing right. So that's what's really the marriage just takes it up a level, but the dynamics don't change.
2: So in a marriage, could it become more of a partnership?
0: If she wants it to be.
2: So you're still she saying, know what she
0: doing.
2: So you're saying still in the marriage, she's still kind of the boss.
0: Yeah. Now she's now she's the boss on paper. <laughs>
2: <laughs> see, would
0: your social security number to it <laughs> so yes yeah, she, she really the boss now <laughs> see
2: well as a you, you hear my struggle with this because as a christian i'm looking at that biblical hierarchy and then i'm looking at your heart hierarchy and i'm looking at the marriage and the woman being kind of the partner beside the man and them working together and you're saying
0: somebody's got to be in charge and, Somebody's you're it be can't in charge. Be, and
2: you're saying it can't be him
0: it can be him and in a lot of cases it is him but look at relationships now it can be him that doesn't mean it's going to go well it can be him but men aren't good at we're not good leaders like that you're the leader means that not the person who's at the head it's the person that everybody follows mm-hmm. so in most households if you want something done or if you want to know if something can be done or what are we going to do, the bug stops with the woman. If the kids ask, can we go to the park? And they ask their daddy, what's he going to say? Go ask your mama. Thank you. <laughs> because if we say yeah, but she has some whole other stuff planned, now nah, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Why would you tell him yeah, you didn't check with me? Right. The man is the appointed kid. That's what, the biblical, that's what the biblical, that's what the Bible does with the man. So the man just doesn't feel like he's just non-existent. So God appoints the man as the head. Okay. So the head is just basically like having a manager. The manager of an office is really just the person that we get to blame.
2: <laughs> Can you imagine what it must be like for a person to spend several years in prison or jail? They get out and have no job skills. No direction, no confidence. Now, what if that same person has spent his time incarcerated studying, learning, expanding his mind, his thinking, gaining self confidence, coming back into society with a plan, goal, direction? In episode six, Education and Reentry into Society, we talk about making that happen.
1: But what we were certainly able to do is uh, pilot in more depth the process of co-instruction. And Darren alluded to this. Depending on the class, the co-instruction will take on different forms and different features. Uh, For example, in my African-American history class, what I did was provided a a mini um, criminal legal system workshop. So four or six of the class sessions was specifically discussing the, the history of African-Americans using the lens of carcerality and surveillance as being a very significant uh, impactor of the ways in which race, racism, and racial ideologies get formed. And then we also spend some time talking about uh, the, the history of incarceration in uh, Wisconsin, the, the more recent history and what the data looks like. Uh, so we were connecting not only the the local experience to that broader trajectory of African American history, but then we were also hearing from someone who had that direct experience, who now is this you know remarkable community organizer, and so to for students to not only hear that expertise but to also hear the evolution, as Darren mentioned, it's really remarkable. And there's one other thing I want to mention um, in the process of interviewing. Uh, folks for Sharon's position as community liaison, that in and of itself was one of the most remarkable experiences I have ever encountered uh, because it became painfully and yet brilliantly clear that we are wasting so much human potential and human expertise because of the sickness that is that carceral system.
3: But what, what it was really missing, it was missing a very human experiential component because you can show a video on this stuff, but it does not have the same impact on students as having a human being talk about their own experiences with those types of forms of oppression and discrimination and mistreatment. And so that was the thinking, is I, was, is I wanted his participation to kind of almost give a little bit of life mm-hmm. and to really humanize the human beings that are involved in this, because it is so easy, the system itself is naturally is a process of dehumanization and so part of the work that we're doing is finding is identifying ways in which we can humanize those individuals that are justice impacted and so when you have really um, intimate involvement of justice impacted folks especially at the leadership level right because it can't just be you know, token-esque positions. that's like, hey, you know, we want to have this, you know, almost like, hey, let's put you on display. Right. right. I'm not. We're not. You know, that's not really the vibe of what we're trying to do. We're trying to have people that are deeply in, involved in the decision making, in the vision planning.
1: Personally, I can say that while I was in prison, of course, I, I achieved my bachelor's degree. I earned 57 certifications and diplomas, as well as a paralegal degree, and I began my graduate courses while I was in. Prison. So there are opportunities and there are opportunities for individuals to express their talent and to seize opportunities, carpe diem, if you will. But it is just made exceedingly difficult by all of the bureaucracy, the red tape and the barriers, the unnecessary barriers in many cases that are placed in the way to help determine a person's failure and not facilitate that individual's success.
2: When we started the 411 podcast, we focused exclusively on human trafficking, specifically sex trafficking. We have tried to hammer in that sex trafficking is everywhere, in all of the counties of Wisconsin. In the fifth most popular podcast, I chatted with Jenny Almquist, Executive Director of Fierce Freedom, about sex trafficking in northern rural Wisconsin, who told me that high school boys are forcing their girlfriends to have sex with other boys for cigarettes. And pornography is exploding among kids.
4: You know, I think it's easy for all of us to think of sex trafficking as it kind of falls into some pretty normal, uh, normalized way of thinking, either being prostitution or Um, it could be being taken, kidnapped, Mm -hmm. and then sold into um, the industry. Uh, But what we find, and I would imagine that this is also going on in the bigger high schools and the bigger cities as well, Um, but what we find is, um, and this is sex trafficking, is when uh, boys in middle school, high school, or anybody uh, will sell their girlfriend or partner uh, for um, maybe a pack of cigarettes, or it could be for the use of a car. So um, there is force, fraud and coercion in there. And the thing is, is that when we talk in these rural schools and we we get to talk to the girls separately, we it always comes back to that. They just didn't know that they didn't have to do that. Oh, wow. Well, we want that is a goal of ours. I mean, we really we want to really hit on the human part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's really easy to go in and talk about statistics and um all of the the big and broad um, ideas of what human trafficking is, but we really wanna wanna talk to these young people and let them know that that, um, they were created with a purpose. They are, their lives are worthwhile. They have a say in what happens to their bodies. And it's just crazy to me that um, so many people just, especially the girls, just they don't know that they don't have to participate in that. If they don't want to, Mm -hmm. he spoke as, um, he was a buyer and he, a sex buyer and he was arrested. Um, and he, he went to jail. He went through the whole process. He went through, this was down in the state of Texas. Um, and they actually have programming, um, while you're on probation and they have a lot of really great things in, in place. Anyway, um, we met with him and talked to him and, uh, just kind of wondered if he would come up and talk to our organization and in our area uh, if we got an audience together that would really hear his perspective of how are we going to fight human sex trafficking from the angle of really uh fighting demand mm-hmm. and i think how else can you do that very effectively um, other than having somebody who's already walked through it and his own experiences because we tell a lot of stories and so to hear him talk about how Um, from him watching porn and more porn. And it was actually over many years that his appetite increased more and more. And his arrest came years into this when he went to go uh, buy an an underage girl for sex. And it was actually a sting. And, you know, he'll say that was the best day of his life because he wasn't actually able to um, go through with that. and it's been a huge journey for him, but we are so proud to have him on staff because um, not only is he a voice to this, but he's also able to talk to a lot of the young men and men in our community who are struggling with porn. And we know that it's not just men; it's women as well. Right. But of course, he has um, he has a really solid voice and uh, the ability to speak to people who are struggling with this. And he's able to to really tell them the consequences that are in front of them um, if they don't take steps to bring healing in their own lives.
2: Number four, Kakana and King, the exchange of black and white students in Wisconsin. That was such a pleasure to do. It was a conversation with my friend and former TV colleague, Joanne Williams. She is finishing up a documentary about a controversial play that included two very different schools of Wisconsin, one white, one black, collaborating on the play's production in 1966. And get this, it required a student exchange. There
5: was a teacher at Kacona High School, Thomas Schaefer, who wanted his students to have a broader view of the world. So to do that, he was going to have them perform the play. The play he chose was... In White America. That's the title of the play. Mm -hmm. And it's the history of African Americans from slavery to civil rights. But in Kakona, there are no black people. So he and another teacher at Kakona High School came up with this exchange uh, incorporating a teacher from Rufus King High School, Ruth Thomas. And kids from Kakona went, um, kids from King first went up to Kakona and they lived with families for a month and they did the play. And then kids from Kokona came down to Milwaukee and lived with families for a month and they did the play. This all happened in 1966 play. He wanted to bring kids together and get to know each other through the vehicle of the play. Now the play is highly controversial. It was highly controversial in 1966. It's highly controversial now Hmm. and the playwright who wrote it in 1963 when I interviewed him for this film that I'm doing I asked him what he thought had changed in America since he wrote the play and he said not much oh so I talked to the to the mother of one of the Milwaukee exchange students who's black and I asked her did you what did you hear from your friends when you said you were going to have this white girl living in your house and she said well Some of them thought it was kind of different, but she said, she turned out to be just like any of her other kids. So she said, come on in. And the exchange was over. Uh, It happened in February and March of 66. Some of those parents of both communities maintained relationships. In fact, the family of one of the students went up to Kakana for for a barbecue and a picnic that summer. And they kept in touch with each other for several years so it was it was taking a risk on both sides mm-hmm. but they were willing to take it because they thought this would be a good experience for their kids and they turned out to be right wow and the play itself is not a, a fiction it's all fact mm-hmm. it's all true it's all diary entries and senate testimonies and um uh, witness testimonies um mm-hmm. Conversations between slaveholders and enslaved people, conversations between uh, Frederick Douglass and the president of the United States. So this is all fact. Mm-hmm. And the kids that did this performance, uh, the ones that Rufus King had to do some research before they played these characters. So they learned a lot about the history of the United States that they had never heard of before from all the students I've talked to and and their sister, their relatives, there was very little um, pushback. Mm -hmm. There were some minor incidents, uh, but there was nothing big. And for the most part, everything went well. That's good to hear. Which Which is the surprising part of this story. You would think that in 1966, black kids and white kids living in each other's homes, this would be Shocking and revolutionary and probably caused problems. Right. It didn't.
2: Number three is the episode on housing moratorium. Remember the beginning of the pandemic when schools went viral and moms were leaving their jobs to stay home with their children if they hadn't already been laid off? How do you pay your rent when no money is coming in? The housing moratorium kicked in, then feared to expire, then extended and then expired. On top of that, People who thought they could take advantage of the moratorium discovered they didn't do the steps for it to kick in. Meanwhile, some landlords were issuing eviction notices left and right.
6: You know, when people talk about how black and brown communities aren't always as engaged um, in voting as they they could be, um, and it's not necessarily because people don't want to be, it's because they have... 20 things more pressing and important at that moment to deal with, than you know, trying to get to, um, the place where they have to do their documentation or register vote or wherever it be, or in this case, um, activate this moratorium, um, kind of, uh, uh, restriction for themselves. You know, if they are in a position where they have lost their income or can't pay rent, um, you know, how likely is it that this person is also not uh, rationing and or is canceled whatever Internet connection they might have um, to be able to, to, to do anything like if food is up here, Internet is going to be way down here. And so um, to even assume that a person has access to that, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that uh, kind of like white privilege, um, but otherwise privilege, economic privilege, it blinds you. Yeah. And you don't even see those types of possibilities because that's not your life.
7: Um, people are just seeing this data, but our folks in our community are living this data, right? Right. So we so we are we are seeing that every day and how it plays out. So even when you say uh, pause the rent, we have slum lords that are not fixing, you know, major things that need to be fixed on the house. I mean, we got people. My 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 heat is not working, and my my landlord hasn't came to fix it, right? And then even Mm -hmm. when you say, hey, we have this money to support your rent, most of that rent is going to a slumlord that doesn't deserve rent. So we really got to be mindful of uh, the systems, the structures, and the policies and procedures that's in place, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because if we don't do that, we keep making decisions that make the outcome worse and worse and worse when we're talking about BIPOC communities, especially Black communities. The reality of it, once somebody is evicted, they are at risk for predatory landlords, right? Mm-hmm. Um, landlords, some landlords, you know, the, the 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 better landlords won't rent to them, but the landlords whose uh, history is evicting folks and not fixing things on their property, not being responsive, they target those type of renters, and that's when you just see this whole cycle of evictions happening and happening. But it's it's putting folks at risk. So even now. Um, when folks don't have the rent and they get evicted, that might affect them for like the next five years because it stays on their record. Right. Even if they, even if they, um, pay the rent, right. If that landlord starts the process of a, a court hearing that still is on their record. And some people will say, even though it was resolved, even though it was paid, even though it was dismissed, we still won't rent to you. So it's a whole cycle, uh, of, of just declining, um, Families' uh, ability to, to create wealth and to thrive once that's on their record.
6: And one of the things that differentiates MedCalf from almost every other uh, community serving organization is that we don't do anything without getting the residents input and not just input, but thorough, deep, you know, uh, months and weeks long input and um, in what they want us to do.
2: In our second most popular episode, we discussed... Racial gaslighting, that's manipulation to make the targeted person question their own judgment and perception. People of color are familiar with this. You hear comments such as, racism doesn't exist anymore, or you're being overly sensitive, or I don't see color. Professors Angelique Davis and Rose Ernst discuss their extensive study of gaslighting and how to handle it.
8: Yeah, so I can give some examples um, that I think a lot of, particularly people of color, right, as targets of racial gaslighting can relate to. So, for example, think of the trope of the angry Black woman, for example, right? Um, and say you're in your workplace, someone has um, consistently been doing things that are racially insensitive or just flat out racist, right? Um and like you said, it's that slow, right? Drip over time. And then, right. You get upset as a black woman and you express your anger or your frustration or disappointment, whatever it is. And the response being, Oh, you're too sensitive. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you just calm down and we could have a rational conversation right? When you have every reason and it's very rational for you to be upset about this. So that would be an example of gaslighting, right? If white folks speak up, let's say there is a meeting where racial gaslighting is targeting folks of color and they say, hold on a minute, Uh, wait just a second. Racial gaslighting can occur for them. Mm -hmm. Um, The consequences of it are very different. Um, sometimes they'll be punished, sometimes they'll be co-opted, and sometimes they'll be praised. But the purpose is really to keep them isolated and keep them contained from doing any more activity. And the other thing is, is that they're portrayed as crazy individuals, which goes back to our earlier discussion Mm -hmm. about the NRA shooting, right? And how white people are seen as individuals. Um, and so any actions they take will just be seen as them taking an action. Um, Whereas in the case of racial gaslighting against um, BIPOC folks of color, right? It's going to actually affect the whole group. Gotcha. As well as the individual. Gotcha. What we've tried to do is name it so that you can identify what it is, decide, right, how you want to respond or if you even want to respond. Sometimes you don't want to respond and move on, right? Instead of getting tied up in all of the diversion that happens, these diversionary tactics of gaslighting I mean, that take you away from the work you're trying to do, say the uh, objectives, social justice, or otherwise that you're trying to meet. Yeah.
2: And our most popular episode of 2021 was healing from traumatic experiences and emotional eating. My guest, Bridget Wilder, has an amazing story. She got married young, they had 10 children, and then her husband, the breadwinner of the family, suddenly died. She and her children were homeless, but she got a job, went back to school, got a degree, and lost 170 pounds. And now she helps people with emotional eating and weight loss.
9: Yes, so my degree is a science degree with the emphasis on dietetics. And I also have a minor degree in psychology. So I infused the two, in my program to navigate all of these things that I do in relation to nutrition. I was an imbalanced emotional eater.
2: Mm.
9: I ate my fears. I ate my doubts. I ate my low self-esteem. I ate what I thought was a mess of my life. They're in a place of a lot of unknown variables and don't even realize they're emotionally eating. It's just that life is happening so fast. And one thing about food, Oftentimes it's accessible, it's comforting when nothing else is there. Mm-hmm. So food is not just food, food is a whole being, but we need to understand how it impacts our life. Yes, over three. I lost 170 pounds, and I stand oh, wow. in that right now. I tell people when I joke about it, I used to wear a size 26, now my waist is a 26.
2: Oh man.
9: And I worked for that. I worked through blood, sweat, and tears, I'm able to, at 48 years old now, I'm able to run 10 miles. Mm. But the picture of that is this. When a person see that in me, knowing that I've had that many children, I like to show people that anybody can do that. If I can take charge of living my best life, and it's not just about food, it's just about recapturing who you were predestined to be. And I ask every client the same question. How bad do you want it? And I ask them that question so that they can see their why. Mm. And so that they can understand that it's a journey to enjoy, to get to it. It's not about, oh, i got to lose 20 pounds by by my birthday. No, I get to enjoy the process of self-improvement. That's That's a a
2: good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. Okay, keep going.
9: And whenever you're at a place where you can self-invest, that's valuable. I want my clients to love themselves at whatever weight, because then you see the changes that you make. You're just showing yourself that you're worth it. Mm. I teach a, a, a portion in my program called Decluttering Your Cabinets for Weight Loss Success or Nutritional Success, because everybody's not always looking for weight loss. Okay. But- When I say that, people think I'm going to tell them, take out all the salt, take out all the sugar, take out all the garbage. And yes, that's a component of that. But what I'm really asking them is, what is in your space that's sabotaging your growth? What are your triggers that you may not even realize you have? Do you have an improper way of implementing yourself in you, in your your life? Is it always about everybody else? Or do you even know how to include you? And I ask those questions because I want them to see themselves so they can understand that this is going to be a lifelong process. Because once you lose the weight, that's one thing. Lots of people lose weight, but if you haven't got to a place where you can keep it off, let's deal with that. Why am I always gaining the same 20 pounds back?
2: I'm so blessed by the guests we've had in 2021 who shared valuable, informative information and sometimes extremely personal information. I thank them for all of that. With every episode, I learn something. Thank God we're still around to see another year. And the 411 Live podcast will be here with another lineup of quality guests. I hope you'll join us on this journey too. Until next time, I'm Beverly Taylor. And this is The 411 Live, real people, real talk. If you would like to check out past episodes, there are many ways. Go to your favorite podcast platform, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, like and watch us on Facebook, watch and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, go to our website, the411live.org.